When we talk about our possessions being an extension of ourselves, this issue is taken to the nth level when it comes to things that are actually us. And when I spit into a tube and send Ancestry.com my spittle, I'm sharing an awful lot about myself with this company. So who owns that data? You're not just sharing information about yourself. You're making it possible for Ancestry.com and 23andMe to personally identify everyone else in your extended family. So genetic data, like the wedge of space on the airplane, as it becomes more valuable, ownership is always up for grabs. And there is no natural or correct or uncontested answer for who owns that data. Uh, the reason that gene testing is so cheap is that you're not actually the customer. They basically give away the gene testing in order to collect your data, to aggregate it and sell it to pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming at you live from Atlanta, Georgia. It's a great day to be alive. Hope you're enjoying this literal and metaphorical spring resurgence we're having in your neighborhood and around the world right now. I've got an amazing conversation to share with you today with two gentlemen who have written a book called Mine, M-I-N-E, exclamation point. These guys are Michael Heller and James Salzman astute law professors at some of our nation's leading institutions. And this book is an interesting exploration of what it means to own something and what our possessions say about us. We'll dive into that in just a moment. Before we do, I want to let you know that I'm getting my second vaccine shot here in an hour and a half, and I'm pretty excited. Let's party, ladies and gentlemen. That's what I've got to say. I'm ready to roll. I'm not going to live every day as if it's my last. I'm going to just appreciate every day as if it's my last. You know, they say you should live every day as if it's your last, but that's a dangerous way to live. You know who lives every day as if it was their last? Dead Red Bull athletes. That's who. They go hella skiing and stunt flying, and they learn the hard way that contrary to their brand slogan, Red Bull does not give you wings. So uh, keep that in mind when you're strapping that GoPro camera onto your chest. Ask yourself, is this a good idea? It's not. It's not. Yeah, that was a little bit. That's a bit. I gave you a free bit. That's a free sample comedy bit you can use to decide whether or not I'm worth coming to see live. And speaking of which, I will be live at the Omni Comedy Club this April 17th, Saturday night at 8 and 10.30 p.m. That's at the Omni Hotel in the Battery, Atlanta. Got some other country club shows to which, as my friend Andrew Stanley might say, you couldn't come in a million years unless you happen to have access there. I also have a really important show on April 22nd. It's important because I'm headlining it at Mad Life Stage and Studios in Woodstock, Georgia, April 22nd, Thursday, April 22nd, the openers, Nathan Owens and Seanick Gakindi, hilarious dudes, very smart comedians. I know you'll like them. The link to tickets to my show at Mad Life Stage and Studios is in the show notes. Where is it? In the show notes. Those are the notes that come with the episode that you're listening to right now. Let's talk about our possessions ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I really like books that make me rethink concepts that I've taken for granted, or even just revisit concepts I never think about. You know, like Freakonomics was one of those books. And this week's authors have written a book that is being compared to Freakonomics. People are saying it's like Freakonomics. In mine, my new friends, Michael Heller and James Salzman, explore the concept of ownership and property in ways that I guarantee you, you have not considered recently, unless you are either Michael Heller or James Salzman. And if any of you is, hey guys, what's up? Nice conversation. I really enjoyed meeting you. Because most of us assume we know what it means to own something or to have the right to control things and or spaces, but the law isn't always self-evident, nor is it necessarily 
consistent or logical in a lot of ways. And many of the examples these guys include in their book are going to make you mad. They're going to kind of like, they irk you. They irked me. I'll speak in the first person. They irked me on some kind of fundamental level that surprised me. Like, here's an example. You remember that case on the airplane from whatever, a couple of years ago, where this woman goes to recliner seat and the guy behind her, such a clever fella, had installed the knee defender, some plastic clip that prevented her from reclining her seat so that he could have all that important space to himself. And then they got into a fight and of course it went viral. The knee defender case. Interesting example of how airlines have not taken a stand on who owns, quote unquote, who is rented, who has the right to that space for the duration of the flight. And people get really pissed off. And to me, there is a clear person who is in the right here and a person who is in the wrong here. And if you want to know where I stand, you got to stay all the way to the end of the show. And I'll tell you, unless I tell Heller and Salzman, which I might have done in the interview. Examples like this, and they talk about how like when you bring that up to people, like 50% of the population falls on one side or the other, but not just that they're split. They're like really passionate about their side of the argument. There's a bunch more examples like that in the book and in this conversation. So a long way of saying, I really found their book, which I read and thoroughly enjoyed, really interesting. And the conversation was most pleasant as well. Let me tell you about these guys. Michael Heller is the Lawrence A. Ween. I think that I'm pronouncing it right. Apologies if I'm not Mr. Wine. He is the Lawrence A. Ween Professor of Real Estate at Columbia Law School. He's taught at NYU, UCLA, University of Michigan, and Yale Law Schools. He's an honors graduate of Harvard College and Stanford Law. So he's a smart dude. So is James Salzman, who is the Donald Bren Distinguished Professor of Environmental Law with joint appointments at UCLA School of Law and the UC Santa Barbara School of Environment. In fact, before our interview started, Jim pointed his camera out the window and he looks out his window at the Pacific Ocean. What a cool gig he's got. Among many other accolades, Jim is a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, a McMaster Fellow, and a Fulbright Senior Scholar. He is a graduate of Yale and holds graduate degrees in both law and engineering from Harvard University. I don't want to brag, but I graduated with a 3.4 GPA from Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Don't forget to check out the tickets to my show at Mad Life 422, link in the show notes. But for now, ladies and gentlemen, this is Michael Heller and James Salzman. Michael Heller and Jim Salzman, welcome to Crazy Money. It's great to be here. Thank you. Guys, you've just published a book called Mine. Where does the title come from? It comes from the very first words that kids say. First they say mama, then they say papa, and then no. But soon after that comes mine. And mine is one of the first words every kid says in every culture. It's not just American kids. It's not my not spoiled kids. kids. All over the world. Every culture in the world. Yeah, if you go to playground, that's all you hear, right? You hear that a lot at the country club too. <laughs> Why is it important to examine the nature of ownership and possession? So we are basically surrounded by ownership every day, almost every minute, if you think about it. Ownership determines where we live, what we eat, uh, what we drink, what we drive, the medications we take. It really is like a fish that is swimming in water. We wrote the book for the fish to say, wait a minute, I'm swimming in water. Because uh, we don't really think about ownership. When we think about ownership sort of formally, we think about wills and we think about contracts and stuff. The fact is 99.99% of our interactions with ownership have nothing to do with the law right? This never go to court, but can you lean your airplane seat back or not? Can you save your, and snowbound cities, can you save a parking spot that you dug out with a chair? What about the place in line? What about the sandbox 
where your kid's bucket was just taken by another kid. Those are all ownership battles. So we talk about the law, of course, because we're law professors, but a lot of the book is about how important central ownership is that's not law-based. Before we dive into some of those examples that you mentioned, I want to explore what does it even mean to own something? What does that mean? What it means is that other people basically respect your claim to the thing. They back off. It doesn't mean anything more severe than that, anything more sort of legal than that. And it often is completely outside of the law. It's the who gets what and why of our daily lives. That's what it means to own something. So take a very simple example. Sharing doesn't make sense unless you understand ownership, right? It's not sharing if you give it to someone and they don't give it back. And so it really underlies really our most basic intuitions. It's literally primal. Springtime now, you go out, you're in Atlanta, it's beautiful, you know, birds chirping and everything. If you had a translator for what the birds are saying, you would hear them saying, back off, buddy, with a Southern accent. But what they're saying basically is, this is my territory. Dogs do it, bees do it, bears do it. We do it too. We just do it different ways. Where's the line between the person and their possessions? Well, we possess ourselves. So the origin of ownership, this actually dates back hundreds of years to some of the like great philosophers, whatever they had to say. But what they would say was that ownership begins with self-ownership. So our bodies are the beginning of ownership, our labor. We own the work of our hands. So everything comes out from us. So ownership actually begins and in some sense ends with the person. And then we reach out from there to what we can sort of control and encompass out in the world. There's also a psychological aspect to that, which we can see with the notion of conspicuous consumption, right? So in some parts of our society, people define their worth to the outside world as people saying, how much have you got? Right? So I remember in college, one of the sayings we saw on t-shirts was, whoever dies with the most at the end wins, right? That's kind of the ultimate conspicuous consumption. There are other philosophies, right, with which basically say, don't focus on consumption, conspicuous consumption at all. Focus on, on your inside. So there's both this sense of where the rules for ownership come from that Michael was talking about, and the psychology of showing consumption that I'm talking about. Here in my life, like during my year in pandemic, I condoed my house. So I threw out a lot of my stuff. So part of the year was getting rid of stuff, but also I didn't get rid of everything. There's a lot of stuff that's very personally meaningful to me. So some of our physical possessions actually become bound up in who we are. I have old cookbooks where like there's stains on the pages. I remember cooking those meals and it really matters to me to have that stuff. That stuff is part of who I am. And the idea that a new verb could enter our vocabulary, Michael said condoed, right? Normally it's our <laughs> condo and apartment. Marie Kondo is what he's talking about. I, I had to think about that for a second. I was like, you bought into an association with your, with your neighbors? What happened? Yeah, you know, Marie Kondo, did this give you pleasure? Thank you. I'm going to pass it on. That's a sense of ownership. Yeah. You made the distinction or you pointed out that the word mine that infants use so clearly is so important to them because they see the objects as an extension of themselves. And that's just the beginning of a lifetime of seeing this. Can you explain what the endowment effect is? So to sort of build on that, child psychologists have studied this a lot, right? And again, in every culture, essentially it's part of your separation from the, the parental figure and you start to extend your control to other things. That's sort of the mind, the mind instinct you were talking about. The endowment effect is a little different. So this is based on a very, very clever experiment that won following in Kahneman a Nobel Prize. So you have two groups. One group is given a generic coffee mug. The other is shown the same mug. And this could be with any kind of object. And then they're both asked, how much is this mug worth? 
Now, you would think they give the identical answer because it's just a mug they've just seen. That's not what they find. What they find is that the group that's been given the mug values it at more than twice the value as the group that was just shown it. And what they find, and again, they've done this with sports tickets, uh, with chocolate bars, you name it, is that essentially once you physically possess something, it feels part of you and giving it up is difficult. The psychologists call this loss aversion. And the more general term is, is the endowment effect. And retailers know this. And so next time you, your listeners go to an Apple store, realize the managed chaos is not by accident. The idea is the store people are told this, let folks spend as much time as they want playing with the cool gadgets. And over time, this expensive iPad starts to feel more like my iPad. And maybe it's not so expensive after all. Same idea with car showrooms, right? They're urging you to go on a test drive. Sure. Uh, refunds, no questions asked. They want you basically to move into the space where physical attachment becomes psychological attachment and the value in your mind goes up. So whenever I get an offer for a 30-day free trial for any product, they want me to have that in my hands and start to consider it an extension of myself. That's exactly right. All right. I have to tell you guys that you did a great job outlining a lot of different circumstances where our notion of ownership is challenged. And if nothing else, you informed me, certainly, but not until after you confused the hell out of me, because there's so many different ways to interpret ownership. So let's look at the lens of the ways that societies determine ownership. The first one is, appropriately, first come, first served. So here's one of the big findings that we came up with and was surprised us. It turns out there are just six ways, six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. So a lot of the ownership conflicts that you have in your life, when you're saying, I'm holding on to it, it's mine, that's possession is nine-tenths of the law. Another person says, no, I had it first, first come, first served. That's another of those six simple stories. So first come, first served goes way, way back in history. And it's you know how inheritance were passed on. It's how rivers are appropriated for private use. It's how kids line up in the playground to take turns. First come, first serve is a super powerful way to claim ownership. And it turns out that if you're a savvy business, what you're able to do is take that primitive, instinctual, a very simple understanding that first in time is first in right and turn it upside down. So basically have people feel that they're still following that ancient rule, but actually change the content of the rule to have a really different outcome. It turns out that people feel that first is an empirical fact, and it's not at all. It's a story. And if you can understand how that story works, you can really change how people act out in the world. It's how America was claimed from the Native Americans was a different definition of what it meant to be first. Yeah, because they certainly weren't first, right? When the settlers got here, there were other first people here that were more first. Right, but it turns out first isn't a fact. That first is a matter of definition. And the way courts defined first in America was to say that it was first to cut down trees, first to build stone fences first to do row agriculture, first to make New England look like Old England. So the claims of Native Americans, they were not first in the law, in the early American settlement. They weren't first. It was a surprise to them because they'd been there for millennia. But first turns out to be up for grabs. And this actually matters a lot for you today. This is how COVID vaccines are being given out and COVID testing. First is never just as simple as it seems. It's always highly engineered and engineered in ways that would really surprise you. Certainly surprised me going to Disneyland and waiting in extremely long lines and discovering that that wasn't how they gave out access to the Splash Mountain 
I thought you had to wait in line. And that turns out to be the rule for suckers. <laughs> you wouldn't dare to disparage the mouse in your writing, would you? We love the mouse. We love the mouse. You've been conditioned to love the mouse. We'll get to the mouse. <laughs> we'll get to the mouse. The next one, and we'll come back to each of these, right? Because they come up again and again. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Sure. So this is something, and again, you know, you've got listeners from all over the country. So in Chicago and Pittsburgh, a few other cities where there's a lot of snow in the winter, there's this challenge, right? You come out after heavy snowfall and you identify the sort of suggestive mound of snow and think, well, that's probably my car. And you spend an hour or two digging it out. You get in the car, you drive out of the space to get to work, and immediately you have one fearful thought, which is, what am I going to do when I come home? <laughs> where am I going to park? And so the way that they have solved this in some cities is what they call a parking chair. You literally put out a chair. It's, it's called the Pittsburgh parking chair. In Pittsburgh, it's called dibs and savesies in, in other cities. And the amazing thing is it's respected. There are examples of orange cones, a Fruit Loop box will actually save your space in some places. But here's the thing. If you put out a chair in your parking space after snowfall in New York City, you will lose not only the parking space, but also your chair. And that's right and just in New York City. Now, that city gets a lot of snow. Rochester, they got a lot of snow. They don't have parking chairs either. So possession is one-tenth of the law in those cities because people don't respect the symbols of possession. What's really interesting is that in Boston, there's a battle that's been playing out because in South Boston, used to be the case that basically you had the parking chair. It started to gentrify. Businesses came in. The parking spaces are even scarcer, and the newcomers don't respect the symbols of possession. And so you've had fights break out. You've had uh, cars that are keyed. And this sort of unspoken language of whether something claims it or not is really being changed in, in, in real time. Those newcomers have never seen goodwill hunting. They're going to get a friggin' beating. They're going to get a beat down <laughs> if they take that space. Wicked pissa. A, wick, a wicked beat down, for sure. <laughs> what was funny is I'm reading the book, I found myself getting offended by some of these examples because they violated my sense of what I felt to be right or just in the way I interpret ownership. And it became clear to me that obviously, as much as I'd like to think it, there isn't one absolute truth when it comes to ownership. And it certainly isn't the way I interpret it. No greater sense of violation of these ethics was used than the knee defender example. By the way, all these examples happen when we humans are shoved into involuntary interaction with our fellow humans to work out this grown-up playground scenarios. So let's talk about the knee defender. Yeah, the knee defender is great. It actually is the anchor story for our book. It's the very first story that we tell. James Beach, the big guy over six feet tall, he's on a flight from Newark to Denver, gets on the plane, plane's pretty crowded. He's got a middle seat, row 12. Plane takes off, he puts down his tray table, and before he takes out his laptop to start working, he takes out these two plastic clamps, 21 bucks on the internet. They're called knee defenders. They work, right? They defend his knees by locking the seat in front in a fully upright position. Uh, the woman sitting in front of him tries to recline. She can't. Finally realizes what's going on, gets him to basically say, yeah, I'll take it off. And he doesn't take them out quickly enough for her. She jams the seat back right? The laptop goes flying into his chest. He jams the seat back up, reattaches the knee defenders. While he's doing that, she takes her glass of water and throws it in his face. We don't actually know how this would have escalated because at this point, the pilot executes an emergency landing to Chicago uh, where they're escorted off the flight. Now, 
turns out that these happen quite a bit. Your listeners may know about one involving Wendy Williams. There was actually a viral video of her. So these are not uncommon. So what's going on? Well, there are two things that are really worth pointing out. The first is, why is this an ownership battle at all? It's an ownership battle because it's a conflict over who controls the wedge of space behind the seat. Does it belong to the person reclining? Or does it belong to the person who's got the laptop out and they're trying to defend their knees? And Michael was talking earlier about how there are these six stories we all use to claim everything. Well, let's see how they play out, right? So the person in front says attachment. I own it because it's attached to something I already own. The recline button allows me to recline my seat into the space. It's attached to the back of my seat. It's mine. James Beach and the folks who are defending their knees say, no, 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 possession. You know, I'm using this space. And when you lean into it, it's trespass, right? And so you've got these two conflicting stories. What's fascinating is we do a lot of public speaking on this. And with Zoom, we can do polls. And we find virtually every time when we ask people, who's the jerk here? It splits 50-50. That offends me because the answer is so clear who's in the Beautiful. right here. That's right. You got your story and you're sticking with it. Who do you think is right? Who's in the right here? Well, I'm six foot one. And so I definitely believe in the right to defend your knees. But what's fascinating is that people, not only they're, they're shocked that there's a difference, they're shocked anyone could think differently. Exactly. That sort of gets to the first point that it's a storytelling battle. And Michael sort of can talk about what's really going on with the business aspect of this. So it didn't used to be the case that people had these fights. There used to be enough space between seats. And the airlines have been squishing us closer together each year. So it went from 35 inches now to about 28 inches between seats. And what that means is that wedge of space becomes increasingly valuable. And that's true for every ownership conflict. It's true on the internet. It's true about land. It's true about satellite parking spaces up in orbit. That wedge of space represents conflict over something that we both want. And it turns out that the airlines have designed that wedge of space to be able to sell that space twice. They sell it to Jim to lean back and they sell it to me for my laptop and my needs. They profit by selling it twice. And the way they can do that is they use one of the most advanced tools of ownership engineering, which is something called strategic ambiguity. Ownership is ambiguous a lot of the time. And by keeping it ambiguous, they know that you and I are gonna mostly be polite, mostly work it out. And while we're being polite, they're laughing all the way to the bank. Strategic ambiguity, another word for that is chicken shit equivocation. <laughs> they don't call it that in business school, but that is basically the idea. <laughs> or, or it's unforgivable aggression or aggressiveness. Are you a lean back person or are you a defend the knees person? Uh, my most passionate point of view here is what I just said about the airlines. And it demonstrates the importance of clear ownership rules. If there's one takeaway from your book, I would say is that our concept of ownership is arbitrary and it differs among cultures. It differs among countries. It differs among states, right? So how can you say that one way to interpret it is absolutely clear? You cannot. And what's missing here is clear delineation as to whose property that is. And where that ambiguity, the planned ambiguity, strategic ambiguity exists, you get people throwing drinks in each other's faces. But that's the point. The airlines are the ultimate controllers of that space. And they have decided that for them, it's more profitable to keep it ambiguous because it lets them sell out twice. If you don't want that, it's not that it's arbitrary. Ambiguous is always a choice. That's the point. Mm. Yes, it's arbitrary. Mm. And we can always make a different choice. So if you don't like the rule, which is that they're deliberately keeping it ambiguous, you have to fight back against that. Buy a more expensive seat. That's part of the point of the ambiguity. Right. They're making it so uncomfortable in the economy that they're forcing people to move up to economy plus in business. Jim. 
And they've made the knee defender, they've banned the knee defender by a lot of airlines because they want to keep selling the same, the same space twice. Now realize the knee defender is kind of a fun, funny, irksome story, but there's much more at stake. So think about, go from 35,000 feet to the web. So who owns your click streams? Uh, right. So these are basically the looks and the likes, right? These are worth. Uh, Jim, I delete my entire web history for reasons I'm not going to go into. So, <laughs> <laughs> but this will be a theoretical conversation. Who owns the click stream? Not all of your listeners are as on top of this as you are. Um, <laughs> and the fact is, you know, this is how a lot of the web apps make their money. Right. So, for example, you know, let's say, you know, now we're going to start flying again. Thank goodness to the COVID vaccine. You say, you know what? I think I'm going to look into going to Chicago in a month. So you go on some website, you look into flights, and the weirdest thing happens, which is for the next week, every website you go to, these ads pop up talking about Chicago hotels and Chicago restaurants and Chicago movies. That obviously is not a coincidence, right? They basically, the travel app took this information, took your clickstream and sold it to advertisers. Can they do that? Who owns your clickstream, it basically is out there. And what's really important to realize is that the same six stories that are operating in the playground and are operating with the reclining airline seat, the knee defender, they're in play on, on clickstreams too. The web apps, they basically say attachment, right? You left your clickstream on our app. It's ours. We're taking it. Thank you very much. Actually, they don't even say thank you very much. They just say, we're taking it. We can say no, right? Self-ownership, it's part of me. I get it back. And what's fascinating is that with the exception of Europe to a degree and California to a degree, this is ambiguous. It is up for grabs and it's going to come down to a storytelling battle. And so, you know, the important thing to realize is that you can take a story that seems trivial, like Knee Defender, and it's happening really with one of the most consequential questions of our time for ownership. Same thing. Yeah, I sold digital advertising for 15 years, so I'm relatively familiar with it. And as you point out in the book, there's all kinds of disclaimers and terms of service that people agree to without ever reading it. And basically, when you go to a website, you're allowing them to put a cookie on your browser, which then alerts the next website you go to that you have been to that kayak.com looking for flights to Chicago, etc., and it points out, well, maybe not the arbitrariness, but the difference in the way each market interprets it, because in Europe, they're taking it very, very seriously. In California, they're taking it seriously, less so in the rest of the United States. There is some benefit to all of these things, though, because when I sold advertising for Yahoo back in 2000, we had these ads that were called run of sight. We sold banner ads that were run of sight so that you would run your book for, say, Tampax. And it would run to everyone on Yahoo. You had to pay extra to run it only to females. That is a phenomenon that no longer exists today. If you're getting a Tampax ad and you're a guy, that is a mistake that's happening on the part of the web publisher. There's something is going wrong because targeting has gotten so good, partially because of the way data is being shared and used. That doesn't make it necessarily good or bad for society, but there's benefits for broader and more strict interpretation of these things. Is that true, Michael? Well, here's the thing, Paul. So you are sophisticated enough to be able to mask where you go on the web so that you're not being tracked. But it's one in a thousand web users who can be that sophisticated. In some parts of the world, in parts of Europe and parts of California, you have the ability to say, no, don't track me. So you have the ability to sort of opt out of being tracked, which means you get crappier ads. Right. Or you get the ads that don't serve you in any way. What our argument is, is that you should have the ability to say yes and get paid for it. Like your clickstream actually has a substantial positive monetary value. It's worth hundreds or in some cases, thousands of dollars for that user for that year. 
And you have no ability to monetize that right now. If we had a rule that said, this is my clickstream, I possess it, just like I possess the space for my knees. If we shifted in that direction, we'd have the ability not to hide, which is your solution, which is a reasonable solution, or to say no, which is the European solution, but the ability to say, yes, I'm prepared to have you track me, but I want to get paid for contributing my data to your service. And when we talk about our possessions being an extension of ourselves, this issue is taken to the nth level when it comes to things that are actually us. And when I spit into a tube and send Ancestry.com my spittle, I'm sharing an awful lot about myself with this company. So who owns that data? You're not just sharing information about yourself. You're making it possible for Ancestry.com and 23andMe to personally identify everyone else in your extended family. Like you're basically ratting out the entire family, not just yourself when you send them the data. So genetic data, like the wedge of space on the airplane, as it becomes more valuable, ownership is always up for grabs. And there is no natural or correct or uncontested answer for who owns that data. So in that vacuum of ownership, the gene testing companies are saying, great, we're going to assemble that data into these very valuable databases. Uh, The reason the gene testing is so cheap is that you're not actually the customer. They basically give away the gene testing in order to collect your data to aggregate it and sell it to pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies for drug development and for insurance ratings. So it's actually quite valuable data. It's so valuable that they want to make sure people are basically sending in the spit more or less for free so they can assemble it into their big databases. So they're using the very same stories that are on the airplane example, the same stories about attachment, and they're using another story, labor. You reap what you sow. So they're saying we've done the labor of assembling it. And we don't realize is we actually can push back against that. You can decline to click assemble my data when you send it in. Or what we could do is go one step further and think about how do we change the law the way California did for clickstreams to provide more value to us as individuals, uh, more protection for our privacy, more protection for the value of the data that we're creating. Hey, everybody, it's Paul. We'll be right back with Michael and Jim in just a minute. You know, one of the things I love most about doing the podcast, besides the fact that I get to be in your ears and on your mind once in a while, is that I get to meet incredibly interesting people like Michael Heller and Jim Salzman, for example. And if you find conversations with brilliant minds like Michael and Jim interesting, you are going to love a conversation I had a few weeks ago with a guy named Daniel Markovitz. He is a professor of law at Yale University and the author of The Meritocracy Trap, This episode came out on January 19th. It's titled Working Ourselves to Death, and it's about basically how uh, meritocracy in today's world often leads to jobs that don't make our lives better. They make our pocketbook better, but don't make our lives better. Again, it came out on January 19th. So after you're done listening to this episode with these awesome guys, Michael and Jim, go back and check out the interview I did with Daniel Markovitz on January 19th. All right, back to the programming. This raises so many questions and getting your head around it can be difficult, but let's take a much more practical, easily understood example about our bodies. I can sell my plasma, my sperm, and theoretically my hair, but not my kidney. Why not? It's just a choice. Until the 1980s, it was legally allowed to sell your kidney, but it wasn't practically possible until the late 70s. So there was a window of time when it was possible and legal. But because in this country, we have such a deep, complicated, horrific history of slavery, we have a notion of self-ownership in this country, which I think derives from a very powerful sense of hands off my body. 
And then that sort of legacy of slavery turned into a very practical piece of legislation in the mid 80s that said, not only can you not sell yourself, but organs themselves, like kidneys, weren't sellable. I think if we did that law again today, we probably wouldn't have come at it in quite the same way. But there was sort of a a moment of real fear of sort of the consequences of having kidney markets. Can't 23andMe just grow me a new kidney? So there's always an interaction between the technology of rocket engineering, putting people on the moon and ownership engineering with how we live here on Earth and medical engineering making possible these kinds of advances, and ownership engineering, which is how we actually implement them in the real world. So it's very much possible that you'll be able to have artificial kidneys, in which case selling a spare kidney in order to save someone's life who has kidney failure won't be a relevant conversation anymore. So we often have technologies of ownership and technologies of biomedicine or rockets leapfrogging each other. So they're both in dialogue with each other. So it may well be the case that we get to a point where we don't have such a desperate need for spare kidneys the way we do now. All right, let's step back from genetics. My home is my castle. So I have a title to my house and the yard surrounding it. Do I own the dirt three inches below my grass? What about 20 feet below my grass? Yeah, so this basically goes back to one of the stories, which as you said, is my home is my castle, right? It's attachment. I own it because it's attached to something I own. So we accept that, you know, for your property, you own the surface rights, right? The grass and the house that's sitting on top of it. But as you said, how far down can you go? And more to the point, I think today, how far up can you go? So at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, there actually were lawsuits against airlines saying you're trespassing. If you own this basically column of air from the contours of your lot all the way up to heaven, then they are trespassing. And the courts and government at the time said, no, 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 no. We want to have an airline industry. And so we're going to actually basically lower the column of air you control. Let's talk about drones. So we talk in the book about an example of a guy from Kentucky who blew a drone out of the sky. I dig that guy, by the way. I like him. (laughs) Well, he he actually, it's a merchandise called hashtag drone slayer. You want to wear that t-shirt as well. And the question is, not can he blow it out of the sky, but is it trespassing? And, you know, if the guy with a drone had put the drone in his knapsack and clambered over the fence... Yeah, that's trespassing. But is it trespassing if it flies 100 feet above your property, 200 feet, 500 feet? And this isn't just academic, right? Amazon, UPS, Domino's, they see a world not very far from now where you can actually have drone deliveries. And if you care about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, that's a good future. But it's not going to happen if every landowner can say, you're trespassing, you're not allowed to pass. But again, it's somewhat arbitrarily determined how high a drone can fly. And the difference between a drone and an airplane is that when Delta flies over my house, they're not taking pictures of me sunbathing topless next to the pool. Trying to get the image out of my mind right now. Sure, there's exactly. There's a reason there's not a market for that photo. But, you know, so, so what's the legality of all that? Well, here's the answer is that it's up for grabs. If there's one like through line for our book is that people believe that ownership is fixed. It's something fancy for lawyers. It's not something for them to deal with. And boy, is that not true. All these questions that we've been talking about today are 100% up for grabs. And for the question for drones is we don't know. We got to work it out and we got to make a choice about like how we care about drone delivery versus photos in the backyard. All right. I could talk to you guys for hours over dinner sometimes because there's a million different but what if, and what about this? And all these different segments of society, 
one of the most important implications, I think, is the nature of digital ownership. So let's talk about your book as an example, right? So I didn't buy your book. It was sent to me by your publicist. Thank you very much. But there were no strings attached. So let's say that I own the book. But because this interview was coming up fast, I went to Audible and I paid for, note the term paid for, access to the audio book so that I could listen to it on my brisk 18-minute mile walks. In what ways does the ownership of these two things differ? I like your walks. 18 minutes, that's a good pace. That's a good healthy pace. <laughs> it's 52. That's going to be hard healthy. That's <laughs> you're doing the right thing. That's right. Yeah, so it's a radical difference. The buy now button for downloading for Audible, it doesn't mean what you think it means. So when you click, you know, buy now and they send you a hard copy, Amazon can't come into your house, at least not yet, and like go onto your shelf and take the hard copy off your shelf and walk out of your home. So you know what it means to like buy something and to own it. It's behind your doors. You can burn it if you want to. You can turn it into a collage. You can lend it to friends. When you click buy now online, it feels like you're buying something. It feels like you're owning something. It feels the same. Actually, there have been a recent studies at the, at the University of Pennsylvania that shows that basically every consumer, almost 90% of consumers, believe that buying something online is the same as buying the real thing, downloading something online. And it turns out not to be true at all. Amazon can and has deleted books right off of people's Kindles. You can lose the book right off of your Audible account. You don't have nearly the rights online that you feel like you do. That buy now button does not mean what you think it means. And what that means is that in the online world, there's a big and growing gap between what you feel like you own and what you actually own. What that means is on every download, you're paying Amazon an unearned premium, an extra profit on that sale because of that gap of what you think you believe and what you actually believe. In the online world, possession really is one-tenth of the law, not the nine-tenths that is the sort of feeling that we have when we say, buy now, I own something. It's no accident that that little shopping cart online and that buy now button look the way they do. Those are incredibly carefully engineered to arouse your primitive possession instincts. But then when you click the button, what you get is different and less. And you're getting basically access to ones and zeros. It's just a very different notion of what you actually have. And those ones and zeros, that flow can stop. Like my smartphone, I basically just own a plastic brick. Because if, if I stop getting the ones and zeros going to that phone, it's useless to me. All the data on it, it's gone. It's not mine. So why does this matter? Why spend so much effort making all these nuances clear to the reader? Because it affects how we live every day. We're overpaying. We're getting different from what we think we're getting. We're being pushed around. We're being moved around, moved through space um, all day long in ways that we don't realize. So we think that we're just lining up to get on the ride at Disney World. And it turns out that Disneyland has three different systems for who gets on that ride. And the person who's just waiting in line, they're last, not first. And that's happening all the time. You go into a Starbucks to get your latte and someone cuts around you and picks one up, didn't wait in line. They got, they got it through the app. Um, Starbucks as well has a set of different systems for who gets what and why. So all day long, hundreds of times a day, you're sort of enmeshed in these ownership conflicts and you don't realize it. And part of our hope is that once you begin to see that there are just these handful of simple stories and the governments and businesses are using them to push you around. First, it may make you mad, but then maybe it makes you more effective as someone who could say, I don't like that rule. And the other aspect of it is not the negative aspect. There's a positive aspect. 
I do environmental law. And some of the most important and sort of innovative strategies we have right now to battle climate change, to ensure that fisheries don't crash, those are all based on ownership, engineering. And so the story of the book is not simply, well, it was me, the ownership is being used against us. There are stories there, but there are also stories saying, if we're smart about how we engineer ownership, we can improve things for everyone too. So how do we, as global owners of the ozone layer and the fish in the sea, use the concepts in your book to try to solve the world's biggest problems? Yeah, so let me give an example of fisheries. So your listeners are probably familiar with the reality TV show, Deadliest Catch. Yes, we have a very sophisticated listenership. So they watch a lot of Deadliest Catch in Real Housewives. Great show. So the idea basically is this Alaska crab boats are going out of port into the Bering Sea. And it's super dangerous, right? In the early 2000s, it was more dangerous to be a crew on those boats than to be on foot patrol in Iraq. Why was that? It was because the state basically said, here's the season's quota. And when it's caught, season ends. It was first come, first serve. And so the day, really the minute the season opened, boom, everyone is out of port. Bad weather, too bad, because if you stay in port, you're a chump, because everyone else is going to get the crabs, and the season will be over before you even left port. That's why it was so deadly. In seas, they shouldn't have been in, trying to fish as fast as possible. That was a terrible ownership engineering strategy. A better strategy came from all places of Iceland. And what they did assembly, sort of, you know, to simplify the story, is they used ownership engineering to say that you could own a share of the catch before the season started. It's called catch shares. And they basically, those attached to the different fishing vessels. And so if you have, you know, the Mary Paul Ollinger, you know, fishing trawler. Oh, I like it. And you've got basically 10 shares. So you've got the right to get 10 tons of crab over the three-month season. If the weather's terrible, you stay in port. If the price is low, you stay in port. Overnight, the fishery went to being very safe, and to much more profitable. And this is used now all over the world. And the only tragedy here is really for the editors of Deadliest Cats, because it's very hard to find footage <laughs> that shows that it's really deadly. And the show, the not-so-deadly catch, just doesn't have the same zing to it. Right, right. Not-so-deadly, but economically efficient catch. That is a better title. That doesn't have the same kind of ring to it. Another one of the concepts is you reap what you sow. And as an example... As you may or may not be aware, and as the audience at last night's show is still not convinced, I am a comedian. Why does a person who writes a song own that song, and the person who writes a joke does not own the joke? You reap what you sow is like a really powerful ancient saying that goes back to the Bible. And it's a powerful saying that works for like hardcore stuff, for stuff that you sow, like corn or wheat. But you reap what you sow is not such a useful version for ideas. Like when you have kids fighting in a playground, they're saying, mine, mine, mine. They're fighting over a toy, over a shovel or some food. They're never saying mine, mine, mine over a joke or a story. Like a joke or a story doesn't feel like something mine. And in fact, uh, jokes aren't copyrighted. Like you don't own your joke in the same way a chef doesn't own his or her recipe or fashion designers don't own fashion designs that they come up with. And it turns out it's perfectly possible to have new jokes. Even you, Paul, can come up with new jokes, even though you don't own them. <laughs> I need more jokes. You talk about in the book the importance of analogies. Isn't a song almost exactly, I mean, if I play a guitar behind a joke, that's a song. So why is a song treated differently by the law than a joke? I would put the other way around. Like, you know, my position and the position we write about in the book is that there's too much ownership of copyright, too much copyright for songs as well. Most musicians today make their money performing 
more than they make their money off of the copyright. So it turns out that ownership, in our view, is hugely overrated in many fields of our lives. And in the world of songs and fashion, the world of copyright and books, ownership is ma- and patents as well, massively overrated. We actually get more innovation with less ownership. Comedians are out there working hard, working the room, coming up with new jokes, even though they don't own them. They have different mechanisms to protect their jokes other than legal ownership. I can key a fellow comedian's car if he... No, even better. You can get up like... Joe Rogan. On stage. Like Rogan with Mencia and say, listen, this guy is a joke stealer, Menstelia. You know, so it turns out that comedians have a system that is outside of the law that protects their rights and their jokes. Jim? One of the key insights, Paul, is something you mentioned earlier. It doesn't have to be that way. There could be a law that said comedians can copyright their jokes. One of the key things we talk about, it's really important to keep in mind, is power. Who is writing the rules? And so it turns out that for copyright, we include songs. It doesn't have to be that way, right? As you said, ownership is up for grabs. And it turns out the comedians are on the outside. We think that's a good thing, but it doesn't have to be that way. Comedians being on the outside is a good thing. It's a good thing for comedians. You know, like (laughs) coaches come up with new plays in the sports world and they don't own them. So the goal isn't to have more ownership. The goal is to have more innovation. Let's say I agree with you. How did it come that songs were copyrightable? When you say, let's say I agree with you, it means you don't agree with us. And we're, and, and <laughs> well, let's put it aside for a second, or let's have this argument. Let's get after let's it. have the argument. Why not? <laughs> um, and here's why, because people who are creators always feel that they should be owners, mm-hmm. that they should have the law backing their view. But from the standpoint of we, the society, or Congress that makes the law, the question isn't, should there be more ownership? The question is, how do we get more songs? How do we get more jokes? How do we get more sports plates, more fashion, more inventions? The goal is the creativity. The goal isn't the ownership. And if you can get the creativity without the ownership, that's even better because ownership is expensive. It's expensive to delineate. It's expensive to go to court and fight about. So if you can use some other system, like keeping it secret for certain kinds of inventions or being first for like Bloomberg and his terminals or for using like shaming, like comedians do with jokes. All those other systems of control can be more effective and less expensive than having ownership, legal ownership. The implications of these laws, it seems trivial, and I don't mean to be too self-deprecating here. It seems trivial when you're talking about comedy, but the implications for the way IP is managed has massive implications when it comes to things like the drug industry. Right. So one problem of having too much ownership, which is a hidden problem that people don't realize, is if you have too much ownership of patents... It can make it impossible to actually develop new drugs if there's too many owners of the research tools that you need, too many patent owners of like basic stuff in science that used to be done by universities and put out for free for the public. If that's all owned and you need to assemble hundreds of those patents to make your drug in a bottle, you actually end up with more patents, more ownership, and fewer things that save lives. It's a real paradox that I discovered some years ago that I called ownership gridlock. It's the same with copyright. If you have too much copyright, a lot of American culture has disappeared. All the American culture from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s is still locked away under copyright because we have too much copyright. And for that one, we have too much because Disney bought 40 extra years to protect Mickey Mouse. And in protecting Mickey Mouse, they locked away American culture from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. We love the mouse. We love the mouse. (laughs) As previously established, everyone, we love the mouse. We love the mouse, but too much copyright means too little access to our own culture and our own history. There's more literature and poetry and culture available from the late 1800s 
than there is from the middle part of the 20th century because it's locked away by having too much, too long copyright. So these Gatsby re-releases that just came out happened because the copyright went away. Finally expired. It would have expired, expired. 40 years ago, but for, <laughs> right. but for the mouse. But for the mouse, it was right. locked away for 40 more years. Well, what America needs is more Mickey Mouse fan fiction. Absolutely. So. And actually, Disney is surprisingly turned around. They're actually much more tolerant of fan fiction now. They realize it's actually profitable for them to not piss off their super fans. And to allow people to innovate around their yeah. copyright. It's one of their actually leading strategies now around their intellectual property is to tolerate theft of it. They tolerate theft by super fan websites. It's free R&D for them. Free R&D for them. Exactly right. John Lennon saying, imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. What guidance would you give him about a world with no possessions? Well, I love John Lennon. I actually live near Central Park where he was killed, where they have little Strawberry Fields Memorial on Central Park West. But I don't agree with him on this. I don't want a world with no possessions. I don't want a world of ones and zeros. My concern is that we move to our online lives is not that we're coming to the end of ownership, but that what we're coming to is a world of hyper-concentration of ownership where a very small number of companies control all the car services or all of the food services or all of the whatever. I don't want to live in that world. I also don't want to live in a world where I'm like, you know, renting my engagement ring um, and <laughs> leasing my dog. Like, I don't want to live in a world where I don't have things that are mine. I think that my first car was like really important to me. It was a part of my identity. And I think that there's a physical connection that we have to stuff. I think it's actually a spiritual connection that we have. Uh, that's really important to identifying sort of who we are as people. And a world where we lose that, I think, is a less rich, a less attractive world to live in than one where we have some connections to some of the things that most define who we are as people. So somewhere between no possession and he who dies with the most toys wins. Yeah, I don't think that's so hard for most of us to figure out. You have a sense of what's really important to you, and you have a sense of what you can throw away and what you're done with. And those are sort of different and importantly different categories. And there's kinds of things like the engagement ring and our homes and maybe the car that sort of speaks to us in a more personal and important way. So the book is called Mine! Exclamation point, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives by authors Michael Heller and James Jim Salzman. Gentlemen, where can our listeners find out more about you? We have a website, www.mindthebook, mindthebook.com. We have tons of resources on there. We have really cool two-minute videos on a lot of the cool stories in the book. We have links to a ton of reviews about the book and also links to click through to buy it. It's available at every bookstore. I was actually in a bookstore near the town where I'm in now, a little out-of-the-way-nowhere bookstore, and they had it in the front window. So it's in bookstores now. It's available everywhere online, mindthebook.com. And if I go to your website, will you be dropping cookies on my browser? Absolutely. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. <laughs> Michael and Jim, thank you so much for your time. This is a really interesting conversation and I appreciate it. Sure, Such a pleasure. Thank you very much to Michael Heller and Jim Salzman. I really appreciate you taking the time for that fun conversation. You can see a link to their book in the show notes. It is M-I-N-E exclamation point. Mine. Let's get to the takeaways. First of all, airlines got to get off the fence. Hey, airlines, when your passengers get on a plane, they devolve into fifth graders and without a rule of law, which is your duty to impose, every flight turns into Lord of the Flies at 30,000 feet. We film each other at our worst, and then we let Instagram decide who's in the right. Hey, internet, what do you think? Should Piggy in 34C die? No, Piggy shouldn't die. Maybe he should be removed from the flight. 
I don't know, but we need a decider. It should be the airlines. Number two, be aware of the endowment effect in your life. Just because you own a thing doesn't make it more valuable. As Gordon Gecko said to Bud Fox, never get emotional about a stock. But you know what we do when we own a stock? We get emotional about it because it makes us feel like we snuggle with it or something at night. We would miss it. We'd be all cold in bed by ourselves without that equity to keep us warm. No, it's a dog with different fleas. Dump it. All right, number three, related to the endowment effect. Just like toddlers, we see our possessions as an extension of ourselves. So before you buy something, ask yourself, what am I telling the world with this purchase? Think about that. Would you buy more or less stuff if you had to put yourself through that exercise every time you were going to pull out that credit card? For me, I love Nike Air Force Ones. That's one product I really like. I wear them all the time, except like to play golf or if I'm going to something formal. Not that I've been to anything formal in over a year. But what does it say about me? It's my appreciation for late 80s pop culture, for late 80s fashion. It is a statement of me being casual and cool, but having an eye for detail. Or it's a desperate cry for help to try to appear younger to the comics that are half my age in the green rooms. I don't know. They say I have a good shoe game, whatever that is. All right. It's a bonus takeaway because of self-righteous indignation. And by the way, like the knee defender, if you can create a product that taps into people's self-righteous indignation, you got yourself a winner, folks. Here's my position on seat reclining. If your seat reclines, you should be able to recline, period. If the airlines don't want you to recline, they can engineer that seat to do whatever they want it to do. I'm a tall person. I get the problem with the knees, but that's the way it goes. I've read an article about all these studies the airlines did. All the CEOs say, in surveys, passengers say that they want more space. But what turns out is they're not willing to pay for it. And you should watch what passengers do, not what they say. And every time they lower the prices and shrink the seats, sales go up. When they raise the prices to make seats bigger, people don't want them. That's the way it goes. So if you want more space, buy a premium economy ticket. That's the solution. Or a first class ticket if you can swing it. If it's not worth another whatever, 80, 50, 100 bucks, then, you know, quit complaining. It's the way it goes. That's my position. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong. Wow, I sounded like Rush Limbaugh there for a second. That felt pretty good. All right, folks, thanks for sticking around all the way to the end. If you love what we're doing here on Crazy Money, and I know you do, because otherwise, why would you still be listening? I would greatly appreciate it if you would take three minutes and write a positive review and rating in the app where you are listening on this too. Dangling preposition. Apologies and or share with three friends who you know love to think and grapple with interesting topics. Along those lines, if you like great conversations with very smart people, be sure to check out my interview with Yale Law Professor Daniel Markovitz. It's called Working Ourselves to Death about his book, The Meritocracy Trap, and it came out on January 19th of 2021 like six or seven episodes ago. I know you will find that interesting. I enjoyed my conversation with him. Equally to that with this week's guest. Thanks so much for listening. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.